This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Conceptions, stay right there. Let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play d and You don't dress up to play d Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show. And I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 311, we're going to steal a huge hoard of treasure. (laughs) And joining us for this episode is the Tome Show social media manager. If you see episodes posted on Facebook, it's probably coming from him. He's also one of the creatives over at Fat Goblin Games, bringing us such terrifying 5th edition D&D products as the 5th edition horror book. Welcome back, Ishmael Alvarez. Glad to be here as always. And also with us is the the co-host of the roundtable right here on the Tome Show. Somebody who, thanks to her involvement in Adventures League and conventions, uh, on my understanding, has already run the adventure that we're reviewing about a dozen times beginning to end at this point. Isn't that right, Paige Lightman? Hey there! So, uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> I ran it a dozen times, but in parallel, not in sequence, because oh. I had a 13-table uh, convention that was all the Dragon Heist book, and uh, I'm also running it for a home game, and I, yes, I know this adventure stem to stern. Very good. It's uh, just So do you know about this adventure? It's the latest storyline from Witches of the Coast. Starts here, right in the book, Waterdeep Dragon Heist. It's an adventure that ranges from levels 1 to 5 and is an urban adventure in a way we haven't really seen before. Following from this adventure will be Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, a massive crawl through the various layers of Undermountain. So to start off, full disclosure, uh, who is working from review copies besides myself? Okay, I just, no. want, I just wanted to be clear to everybody. Uh, I'm working from a review copy. Everybody else paid for theirs. So um, that that's whose reviews you can trust. So let's start off with uh, Dragon Heist. And just sort of, let, what's it about? What is the, the, the overall concept and story of Dragon Heist? And since Paige has so much experience with it, why don't we start with you? Okay. Um, I describe Dragon Heist as the greatest heist Waterdeep has ever seen. Uh, it is a... Uh, fast-paced, topsy-turvy um, heist movie of a of an adventure that speaks uh, very much to its roots from the Italian job, Ocean's Eleven, Baby Driver, many other uh, recent heist movies that have gone over very well. Uh, it has excellent replay value because it kind of comes out differently every single time, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Now I'm curious. You, you. Uh, I mean, it's in the name, and you talk about it and compared it to a lot of uh, classic sort of heist movies and what have you. Uh, I'm curious if it plays that way because my experience in in doing a, a deep read through it is that it really reads more of as an investigation story um, than it does sort of the classic heist. But you've got the experience. Does it play like a heist? In my opinion, and I'm just one woman, uh, it does play like a heist. Because it's a, it's a little bit investigative at the first, 
And then you figure out what's going on and somebody else is trying to get the thing. And the somebody else who is trying to get the thing is way more powerful than your group mm -hmm. of adventurers. So it becomes a race to see who can get there first and who can outsmart the other one. I mean, it's Dungeons and Dragons. Your mileage will vary depending sure. on your DM. Yeah. But uh, but I, I feel like if the DM wants a heist... Uh, heist adventure then you're going to have a great heist yeah and if you really want to i mean there are game systems that are designed to run heists right um uh the leverage rpg i, I understand is particularly good at that um the the dust city outlaws Blades, yeah Blades uh, in the dark and dust city outlaws are, are really good at if you want to do sort of the really sort of uh you know oceans 11 style heist uh sort of stories uh so it sounds like this with with a DM who really gets into it that this runs like a, about as good of as much of a heist as D and D is really designed to be. Is that fair? Um, it is fair. Although, I would submit that the 2018 D and D open adventure, The Gangs of Waterdeep, is heistier. Oh, okay. So, uh, so this I would put as the the second most heisty thing that we've seen in Fifth Ed. Okay. Does anybody else have anything else they want to add? It's sort of uh, on an overview about what Dragon Heist is is kind of about. No, I think that covers it pretty well. It yeah. is definitely a heist. Um, if nothing else, it's kind of a, a nice little primer on Waterdeep. Mm. Uh, it, it includes the Bolo's Waterdeep in Kyridian, which we probably will talk about later, but. Um, I think it's an excellent slice of Waterdeep. It shows uh, what it's like throughout the seasons. It gives you kind of a, a nice little picture into Waterdeep itself, mm -hmm. instead of just being a, a heist. But it, it's not—it's not like the Waterdeep Atlas or or some kind of a travel guide, uh, which I would love to see. But I don't think that the, that's what this is. Nor nor will they do anything like that soon. That yeah. that may exist for editions. Although that in Caridian at the end is is sort of serves the purpose of a, a little travel guide to to Waterdeep, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and is intended to be player facing. I'm going to take some credit for for that being available on uh, DM's <laughs> Guild. Some minor credit for that because uh, I harassed uh, Mike Merles and Chris Lindsay until they said, "Yeah, okay, fine, we're putting it on, and we'll well the profits will go to uh, charity and whatever." So I'm like, "Sweet." I don't know if anybody else is pestering them. That probably was, but I know I was. So I'm going to take credit <laughs> for <laughs> for making that happen. You can go buy just that section uh, to to pass out to your players uh, at DM's Guild. So yeah, so so Dragon Heist, and, and it's it's sort of um, digging like the big prize at the end is there's there's half a million gold pieces hidden somewhere in the city. Um, you've got to go get them, and that's why it's called Dragon Heist, right? Because uh, in Waterdeep, the gold coins are called dragons, so it's a heist to get dragons. Uh, mm. And and it has this um, this seasons mechanic because uh, Paige had talked about the the way it, it varies with play. Uh, and Ishmael mentioned that it, it gives details on different seasons, and the reason it, it goes into that those details and you know why how winter is different than spring and summer and fall um, is because the game gives you an option of you can play it in any of those four seasons, and when if you do, the sort of um, villain or competitor that you have that's racing at, uh, after the the gold as well is a different villain, and and as such, the events play out differently. Um, which is interesting. It's a different design than we've really seen before. And uh, I think that yeah, does not tie into that replayability um, 
potential to it too because now you can start in a different season if you'd like the next time you play. Yeah, and I imagine that was the goal, right? Is that you can play yeah. it, you can play it four times with four completely different experiences uh, beyond the the normal sort of differences that occur through play. And it sounds like from Paige's experience that that's how how it sort of plays out. Yes, and I want to point out that there is a fifth uh, villain that there you is. can buy on the DM's Guild to kind of suck it into the back third of the book. Yeah, that was uh, something done by by some of the guild adepts, right? So it's not an official Watsy one, but it's but yes. you, you can expect that it's pretty high quality because it's coming from the people that Watsy picked as these are our high quality, uh, you know, DM's Guild writers. So, yep. So yeah, so I think that's. Um, I think that's a good sort of overview of what Dragon Heist is. Um, now, one of the things that happens that's sort of a keystone uh, event in the Dragon Heist story is early on, the players receive the, the deed to a tavern. And so it sort of becomes um, a bit of a home base, but it's also, you know, there's work to be done in terms of maintaining it and running a business and doing all those kinds of things. I'm curious what people think about that because this is the first time uh, this, I, this is definitely the first time this has been done in, in an official fifth edition uh, adventure. Uh, and it's maybe the only time I can think of. I mean, I'm sure. I mean, there's been lots of adventures over the years. So certainly somebody's done this before somewhere. Um, but it's the only exa- example of this that I can think of um, in, an, in an official published adventure. Um, what do we think about that? Does it work well? Is it something that you'd rather not have to deal with so you could just focus on the, the story? What do we think? Who wants to go first? I will go first. Um, I have not had the good fortune of running the adventure first or uh, so far, but um, I have uh, run The Lost Minds of Fendelver, and I think I've thrown in that the, the group, there's like a dungeon somewhere in the town basically that they go through and the, the main air gives them the deed mm. to the land that that's true is in and i've i've mostly done so to kind of gauge what uh the players reactions and so i have i have a group of uh middle schoolers that i run this for and i have a group of adults that i run it for and it's different with each group mm-hmm. uh interestingly enough but um so far it's been well received and and the players in both groups have have uh kind of taken to the idea and, and kind of done that well to where it doesn't sidetrack things. They're not just now focused on, okay, let's, what, what do we do with our hideout instead of let's go out and do adventure. But mm-hmm. I imagine that uh, in, in past experiences, I've done things and it has derailed the, the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I guess your mileage may vary with that as well. It might be like some groups might uh, flourish with that and some groups might, it might be better to just skip it. So when that, when the Atlanta group was ready to run this weekend in Waterdeep, so it's 13 concurrent tables of of Dragon Heist, I, I was talking to my DMs, and I'm like, all right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, here's some notes on kind of the hotel management minigame. Some <laughs> groups are going to enjoy kind of the exploration and role play there. Other groups are not, that's not going to be to their taste. So here's some other things you can do instead of the hotel management minigame. And uh, we're like, all right, that's fine. So we ran it. Like, people ate it up with a spoon. Like, player housing, yo. They uh, they <laughs> really enjoyed it. 
Um, and they all renamed it different things, and each inn had their own particular drink that they served. <laughs> like, people really, really dug it. My home game group, who are under absolutely no time time pressure, are just like, we need to talk about what colors we're going to repaint the inside. <laughs> and like, oh, my goodness, guys. And uh, it'll be the kind of thing where it's like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say something. The, the, the resident ghost will say, well, he likes the kind of purplish blues. And then, like, it's an hour and a half of trying to figure out the fittings and furnishings <laughs> of this thing. So I, it's kind of cool to live out the fantasy of I have a house and I can do anything I want to it. And I have plenty of money to do it with. And that and it's not just a house; it's also a business. And Waterdeep running businesses is not just straightforward. Do whatever you want because there's all these guilds involved. But there's there's guidance in the book on how to handle that. I think it's a really unique opportunity because of the the nature of the adventure because it's urban and it all sort of sticks in one place. Um, you know, it's hard to to have something like this that really fl- functions well in my experience in most adventures. Because the players are constantly moving around, going all over the place and going, traveling all over the world and whatever. And so the closest you get is they have a ship or maybe an airship or something to that equivalent that they're running. But it's usually not quite the same as running a business and a home. And, and it's haunted, like you said, with its own little ghost, um, which in theory survives and, and you know works with them or possibly ends up being uh, banished and killed and whatever. Um our, our home game has a paladin of Kelimbor in it, and I'm like, oh man, that ghost <laughs> is toast. And uh, and it was a real set of role playing moments that uh, that led to that ghost actually not being toast. Yeah. So yeah. for the for the people who enjoy that kind of role playing, there's a there's a lot of good cool guild contacts and like the the guy who brings the meat every week for the to, for the inn mm-hmm. is super creepy and like <laughs> i've you've got the the local uh head of the the guild that is in charge of inns that comes by and like i there's a big joke about him asking for their tps cover sheets <laughs> i mean it's just a lot of fun just a lot of fun and, and i think i think it is a good point in terms of uh, depending on what type of game you're running, right? Like, because if you are going all over the place, it's hard to have a home base in that way. But I know every group I've played with wants a home base at some point. Mm. Um, and then two things that uh, bring it brings to mind are Acquisitions Inc. itself, because they always had the home base, and there was interesting uses of that uh, in some of the games. Mm-hmm. But also just Harry Potter with. Mm. With their home, so I think it's something that's easy for folks to get into potentially. And mm-hmm. yeah, no, and I and I think it like if you combine uh, and we're not digging into Dungeon of the Mad Mage yet, but if you combine Dragon Heist with Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which is basically a, a giant mega dungeon underneath the city of Waterdeep, then every time you come out of the dungeon, you still kind of have that home base. And I think it, it works well there because you could run with those two products. You could run a, a one to 20 campaign um, all within the city of Waterdeep. Um, now, personally, I'm really, I, and I, and I chatted with some people on Twitter about this a little bit is that, um, I'm not super hyped about the Mega Dungeon. I haven't really dove into it uh, much yet, but I'm, I'm, I have it. I'm prepping my, my dive into Dungeon of the Mad Mage. Um, but it, what's really the idea that came to, to me as I was chatting, chatting with some people on Twitter is that Dragon Heist would be a really interesting introduction into Curse of Strahd. Run five levels of Curse of Strahd, and then the mist comes through and brings the entire tavern 
into one of the towns in you know surrounding Castle Ravenloft, uh, and so they still have the home base, and it's not a huge region, and it's kind of haunted, right? The, the, so Clever. so the the ghosts can sort of keep an eye on things. I think that would, and then it gives them some stakes uh, on what's going on in the area. I think that could be a lot of fun. So. Um, someday that that'll be my plan as, as how I'll run this right is is merge uh, Dragon Heist into Curse of Strahd. That way nice. they're not so squishy when the, by the time they get to Curse of Strahd too, right? So, uh, so one of the other things that comes out really early on and and I feel like has a lot of potential is the way that this adventure more or differently than than any of the other published adventures um, integrate the use of factions and the affiliations with factions, right? There's a whole list of potential side quests and contacts and, and sort of meta stories and whatever that take place depending on what factions the different party members are aligned with. Um, and there's a like a score of new factions that aren't just the the original um, set of factions that they've been using for the you know since fifth edition came out. Now they've introduced oh and you know you're in Waterdeep and you're going to be there for an entire campaign theoretically. Here's a bunch of other factions that are specific to Waterdeep, so you can you know be uh, affiliated affiliated with like Force Gray or some of the other uh, more Water Waterdeep specific factions. Um, what do we think about the way they use factions in uh, Dragon Heist? I like it. Uh, I it, most a lot of people know Force Gray, mm-hmm. so their eyes got really big when they heard they could be a member of Force Gray. Uh, <laughs> so that is certainly a positive way to tie in kind of the the world of streaming mm. with some of the more old farts like myself that uh, that aren't as hip with the things kids do. Um, so it's, it's a good way to give a shout out to the streaming community because boy howdy, as a hobby, has that done wonderful things for us. Um, and it is a way to draw your players that are fans of those streamers into the game. So solid choice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- my only... So the good news is the uh, the faction missions are a little thin because word count is a thing. Mm-hmm. So it gives the GM the ability to take these faction missions and flesh them out into something really cool and put her stamp on how how it all went down. Mm-hmm. Like you've got kind of the general details of the faction mission, but uh, but it, it's a great opportunity in the book for a DM to take it and make it her own. Mm-hmm. No, and that was sort of my thoughts on a lot of those uh, faction missions. It's like, wow, these like they're. I don't even know if I if I would describe it as thin so much as like it's they're really concise, right? They 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 did it. They packed a, a good amount of story into a very very short amount of space, um, and then you know. Uh, leaves room for the dm to sort of fill in the details okay where exactly does this go what does it look like whatever like there's not big descriptions of it but you know you've already played through a bunch at that point even if you're a new dm uh at that point you can be you can start to say like test the waters with doing a little bit of improv right and so there's not a lot right most of the adventure is there for you but there's some room there to sort of uh, play with, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and it's good to hear that the factions actually play out and, and become important in the in the story. Yeah, and I think it's like in the in the fifth edition Facebook group, we've got a hundred and thirty thousand people, and about four times a day, we get a new DM saying, "Hey, I which book should I DM? Like mm-hmm. we went through the starter set or whatever. What should I do next?" 
And it's real easy to recommend uh, Dragon Heist because A, it's the new hotness. Mm -hmm. B, it's only up to level five, so you're not stressing either the DM or the players with mm -hmm. all the assorted shenanigans that occur at level six plus. And uh, it's not that long. Like, it's not as much content, or it doesn't take as many hours as Storm King's Thunder, mm -hmm. for instance, or Tomb of Annihilation, which is a kind of an epic commitment. Well, and I would argue um, that in some ways, Dragon Heist, like, if I'm a new DM, it's harder for me to jump in on what would be traditionally called like a sandbox-style adventure, right? Uh, just because there's a lot more of I don't know what to prepare for and what, what's going to happen next and that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's where like uh, a Storm King's Thunder or a Curse of Strahd, I think, is is I hesitate to oftentimes recommend to new uh, DMs. Um, but Dragon Heist, like, it feels like a story on four different railroads, if that makes sense, right? Um, yeah, it, pretty straightforward. Because, yeah, it's, I mean, it, if, depending on what season it is, depending on who the villain is, it basically lays it out for you and says, okay, go from this, this uh, location to this location to this location to this location. And in each of those locations, it sort of has a little blurb about how that location plays out depending on the season. Uh, and so it, it, like, it's a really different way of organizing an adventure. And I keep saying that um, I, I applaud the way Watsi is not afraid to experiment with adventure design um my, my original thinking was you know experiment so you can figure out what really really works this is a, a completely complete departure from what they've done before uh in terms of of layout and formatting and how to make it work and yet i think it works really well it, it feels like it flows really well uh and i i could hand this to a new dm and they could figure out really quickly um you know how to how to make it work so and I also wonder, because, um, like, Ishmael, I haven't had a chance to play this uh, or run it yet or play it yet. Um, the the way the factions were laid out in here, it felt like it could help steer players mm. into, act, like, having their characters act certain ways or react certain ways. Um, that kind of, like, limited, along with the town, like, with the guard, like, limits that, like, murder-hobo type experience. I'm not sure if how Paige feels like does that come out in play as well does it encourage more of the role play and less of the go out and kill everything sort of play is that what you're talking about yeah I mean that's a hundred percent in the hands of each individual DM sure. and her her players like right. there's like I mean if you recall back in the day uh if for those of us who are who are like a uh, said old parts. Uh, mm -hmm. The original Curse of Strahd adventure I ate was like twenty pages long, like tops, including maps and art. Oh yeah, I still I still have that old uh, Castle Ravenloft adventure up in my collection somewhere. Yeah, we role played the bejesus out of it. Yeah, we did. And yeah. and there was nothing there, like there, well, there's very little there in the way of um, of role playing hooks. So, it, I mean, it, a, a DM can take, like, bare bones and make it a role-play buffet. Mm -hmm. uh, if you prefer a more tactical game, Waterdeep uh, Dragon Heist has that as well. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm curious... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, I just meant in terms of, like, I get it. Like, any DM can just take it. Like, a, a really good DM could take it two pages and do the same sort of thing. I just meant more in terms of, like, it actually fleshes out a little bit differences in the factions like what you might what you could offer players like oh this guy will 
give loans out so maybe I can entice them to come over to this side or something like that that I haven't really seen as much in books so right it provides some role playing provides some role playing hooks that might encourage that style of play um yeah okay very good um so we're talking about all these different factions and there's a bunch of them in this book uh well beyond what was in the you know has been in the books previously uh and that makes a lot of sense uh which factions do we think are the most interesting? Which which is our favorite? If we're going to play Dragon Heist, if we're going to go in as a player, what what faction do we want to be part of? Oh, uh, so like, don't make me choose which one of my children <laughs> I love the most. Like, so you have Force Gray, which is awesome because uh, the Black Staff is kind of the in charge of right. Force Gray, and she's awesome, and Force Gray's awesome. But then you have Bregan the Arth, and uh, like, who doesn't want to hang out with a bunch of like hot, sexy, take no shit buddy drow, who <laughs> are the the biggest rogues and playboys throughout all of Faerun? Like, who doesn't like that? Uh, then you have the Xanathar Guild, where woohoo, we're all crazy, each each person for themselves. <laughs> like, plus Xanathar is so charismatic. Uh, like who doesn't want a piece of that? Like you, you can't lose, can't lose. Okay. Anybody else have, have a favorite? I think, um, I'm going to say the, uh, forest gray is just kind of an easy go-to because of like kind of the reputation that they've gotten. They're kind of like the loose cannon, dirty Harry's of, uh, water deep. And with the code legal, kind of maybe constraining players and keeping them from being murder hobos if someone still wants to go that route. Force Grace probably their best bet. Which is ironic because they're they're theoretically the good guys, right? <laughs> but Oh but... yeah. They're, they're like the superheroes in, in most uh you know modern comic books where they sometimes mm-hmm. do more damage than they than they uh prevent. See I think Force Grey is my number one choice as well, but it has nothing to do with the actual organization of Force Grey. And it has everything to do with, as Paige mentioned, the the, the sort of patron of Force Grey being the the Black Staff. And there are moments within the story that um, I feel like certain choices, whether it be factions or seasons, uh, like we're going to talk about in a moment, um, there are certain choices that combine, in my mind, to make more interesting stories. And um, having that connection to the Black Staff in, has multiple opportunities uh, throughout the the story that I felt like um, could become more interesting than than many of the others. Although uh, Brigand Dareth also has some um, some potential uh, overlap there as well, because being part of Brigand Dareth, uh, a Drow mercenary faction uh, led by Jarl Axel Bainray, when one of the villains is Jarl Axel Bainray, <laughs> um, can be extra sort of uh, interesting to see how that uh, entangles in weird ways. Tracy, did you have a, a favorite faction? So I tend towards nature. So the eco warriors of the Emerald Enclave <laughs> are, are pretty cool. Still, still, still hold up for you after all these years of, of the Emerald Enclave tromping around, right? Yeah. <laughs> right on. Uh, so we talked about, we mentioned sort of how this plays out in different seasons, and each season has different villains, uh, and the villains are sometimes like villains traditional villains in the way that you would think 
of villains and sometimes they're competitors who are just trying to get to the the gold before you do but they don't necessarily want to see you know a bunch of people getting hurt because of it or whatever they're not they don't have particularly nefarious uh intentions with that gold um and so the villains that could be uh with with the addition that Paige mentioned of the DMs Guild um, Adept's uh, fifth villain, the four villains in the book are these are Xanathar, uh, and I have a hard time not calling it the Xanathar because because I know it's a, a technically a title, but there we go. Uh, the this noble family, the Castle Lanterns, uh, Jarlaxle Bainray of uh, Brigandareth, and Manshun of the Zinterim, or at least one of Manshun's currently well-known clones. Because there's a whole thing there too, right? Uh, and, and I'm curious, what do people think about this idea of, like, you, Paige mentioned the idea earlier that, like, there are certain places where you're limited on page count. Well, part of the limitations of the page count are, are eaten up by the fact that there's four different storylines built into this one book, right? If they had done one storyline, it could have been more thoroughly uh, fleshed out and developed. What do we think about the idea of putting in these four villains uh, along with this season concept and all of that? So one of the um, criticisms of Storm King's Thunder, I remember, was that they had so many uh, different options that you can use in that book. For instance, there were the different giant layers and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, and it wasn't as functional to like say, oh, we'll play it over again and we'll do a different giant layer because kind of the end game ended up being the same regardless. And it was um, and it was huge and took a long time. So correct. And so it, that was a lot of kind of wasted space in the sense that uh, it might play different for different groups, but you wouldn't necessarily want to go through it multiple times. And it was this big kind of like epic scope thing. Uh, but it, this seems like it makes more sense. You get to see different parts of Waterdeep. You could potentially run this at different times with a same group, a different group, and it's it's refreshing. Um, it has an end game which makes it different. Like if you were just playing the middle part that kept being different, that might be kind of not as great to do over. Uh, but it seems like this is really uh, kind of uh, a cool way to go about it. You can even say, hey. Let's have everybody start it. I don't know what level would be appropriate. Seventh level, let's just pretend. Uh, and then we're just going to start off where you're going after the, the going through the heist, but we're going to do a different villain. And that works out better than if you were to try and um, take out the middle chunk and replace it with something else. Or at least that's what mm -hmm. it appears to be to me. Okay. Are there thoughts on the, the different villains and the seasons and how it's all broken up into four different stories like that? I mean, I I like it because it gives replayability and it's mm. fun and it's a good way to get a character to fifth level in a relatively fun, relatively quick way. Mm -hmm. And uh, that fifth level is kind of the sweet spot for jumping into Curse of Strahd or into Storm King's Thunder or into right. Tomb of Annihilation. So, there's, a, there's a lot of published adventures that are really tough for those squishy low-level characters, right? Yeah, yeah. So this solves some of that. Tracy, and, did you have thoughts? Yeah, so for me, because um, I typically don't just run adventures that are printed, but I'm often looking for stuff to steal. So the idea that you could present the same locale, which just happens to be a city, uh, in different ways with these uh, different uh, 
factions and groups and people walking around and having their own uh, outlooks and stuff like that is, is very interesting to me. And I'd mm-hmm. rather have like that idea of how how this all could exist in the same city. Um, finally, like in a book form. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but because uh, you don't always necessarily. I, I know you get some of it in other books, but this is more like these things happen within the city. These people all exist here. Uh, and here's how you can tie together storylines and then break them apart too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, no, uh, no, go ahead. Sorry, I'm silly. I said seventh level, and clearly this is a one through five, which right. is completely. <laughs> yes, I'm sure everybody knows what I mean, but right. I'm gonna ask for forgiveness. Anyway. We we get the idea though. Um, yeah, no, I th- I think it's a really interesting and really fun idea, and I think um, each of the villains feels like they play out. It differently like it's a different type of story it's a different type of of, of uh, way that all this sort of unrolls and unravels uh, and so I could very easily uh, even if I'm only going to play it once I could look through the options and sort of pick out the option that's best going to suit me or my players and and what we what we're looking for um, I really like that that opportunity um, I think uh, Paige had mentioned that it's a really nice little quick tight adventure one to five uh, but at the same time, because of those faction um, qu- side quests, uh, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity to add in uh, a ton of little things in between that really make it feel like there's a lot more there than there is. You know what I mean? Because, um, you know, you could have uh, a different faction represented for every single member of the party, which ends up being a lot of po- potential side quests that could be thrown at them um, to engage in. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um I think um, what this is the part of the of the book that ended up really surprising me, because I I went into this book knowing sort of how it was laid out, knowing who the villains were. You know, I've listened, I've read the articles, I've listened to the to the Dragon Talk podcast and where they talked about it and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, and so my thought was, well. Some random noble family, uh, I'm sure they've got some machinations involved. I've read a lot of novels uh, based in Waterdeep. I've never heard of these Castle Lanterns before. Okay, whatever. That's, that, that's a thing, but it may not, it's not going to be my, my favorite thing. Jarl Axel, he's not really a villain, so I don't know how he's going fit, to fit in. Uh, so that wasn't my favorite going into it either. I was really expecting to like the Manchun and Xanathar. They've really invested in Xanathar a lot as a character in the last uh, what year or so. With uh, he, you know, he has his own book out and then he shows up again here uh manchun and the zints have a long history in the forgotten realms i expected those would be the the storylines i would latch onto, and then it turned out i was completely the opposite wrong on every one of those right uh the castle lantern storyline to me is by far the most interesting uh, at least where i'm at right now and and the, and player, it, the players i'm and sitting it's with super poignant oh depending sure. on how you play it out like it's got some real hooks in your heart yeah so, so for people's, uh, uh, you know, so people know that the idea of the castle lanterns is um, they need the money. Like they've, they're like, what is it? Devil worshippers? Nope. Is it devils or demons? Devils. Yeah. You so, can't ever trust a demon. Devils. Well, <laughs> they made a contract when devils make contracts, right? Sure. So Long yeah. Evil, yo. 
That's right. <laughs> so they made a deal with with uh, devils, and they need the money to sort of um, resolve an issue because there's like they're losing their kids. Like was it they were sacrificing them or whatever? It's been a while since I yep. read through that. They bit. can they can ransom back the souls of their children, right? Because uh, they they made a deal with the devil, and the way I play it, I mean every person to themselves, but the way I play it is they've kind of had a. Uh, a moment where it's like, oh my, oh no, I, I kind of see what I've done wrong now, and I have to get this money in order to win my family back. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, so you're right. It's got this real sort of uh, tug at your heartstrings, but it also is one that provides uh, an interesting, different opportunity that the others don't, because there's this sort of formal party that the that the characters can sort of get into to to hunt around and, and interact with people and get information at the Castle Lantern's uh, estate, and um, like that's the one that like I had no interest in whatsoever going into it, and by far blew me away as the most interesting of the of the potential uh, villains. And then Jarl Axel, I thought ended up being way more interesting. Um, than I expected as well, just because, you know, he's Jarl Axel and he's super charming and he's this got, got this sort of roguish attitude and I could totally see, like, he's not, and he's not trying to do anything particularly nefarious with it. He's trying to use the money to weasel his way into water Davian politics, uh, you know. Um, uh, yeah, but it, it's Jarl Axel. There's going to be something nefarious there. Just because you don't see it doesn't, doesn't mean that he's not thinking it. I mean, yes and no, but because I mean, Jarl Axel is not really a, a nefarious person. He's a, he's sort of a, a looking out for himself survivalist, and uh, you know, but he's not like in terms of the the society of Minzer Barons and the Drow. Like he's he's not the bad guy of that story, right? Uh, he, oh, definitely not. Right? Definitely not. But he's he's a rogue. Like he's, oh yeah, oh yeah. He's never going to be a good guy, but he's kind of an anti-hero. Sure. And, uh, but so is Han Solo, right? And we all like him. Sure, sure, <laughs> so. sure. Uh, he becomes a really good frenemy for the the players, <laughs> and it's fun watching like traditionalist murder hobos come up against this, you know, super suave drow guy, and they're like, "You're the bad guy," and mm-hmm. yet, yet I know I should not kill you, and frankly, we're gonna have to work together. And now my head hurts. Right, it's it's just funny. <laughs> Uh, and then the the Xanathar story and the Manchun story ended up being a lot more sort of traditionalist D and D in 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 my uh, read through of the the book. In that the Manchun story is like the the evil wizard who's who's in the tower and doing the the magical experimentation sort of thing, and Xanathar is go up against the 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 uh, seedy underbelly and the and the thieves guild of the city. Um, sort of sort of a story right and and neither one of those is particularly unique to to dungeons and dragons and fantasy stories uh so they're both well done but the other two stood out to me as being much more interesting and unique because they're different i guess unique and different are redundant but still <laughs> uh and two little items about the jar axle part uh has to do with a submarine mm-hmm. and gunslingers yep Tell us about that. Oh, the look on people's faces <laughs> when they're like, oh my God, it has a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, some of the drow uh, are gunslingers um, in the Jaroxel storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and, obviously I haven't played so I haven't seen player reaction and, yet, and, but... and theoretically those gunslingers show up that can could show up in the storyline whether or not he's the main villain or not because all of these all of these other villains are still around 
even if they're not sort of the primary villain, uh, depending on how much people, you know, the, the players sort of go afield and, and explore different areas and what have you. Right. And they have engineer gnomes who made <laughs> a submarine for them. So you get a little bit potentially of um, uh, steampunk type thing mm-hmm. if you want. Mm-hmm. Well, because like, um, so one of the early events that sort of kicks off the whole investigation is um, somebody uh, basically sets off a bomb in the alley where the tavern is. It, it, you know, it's D and D, so of course it's a fireball, not a bomb. But that's sort of the, you know, it's basically the 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 uh, the sort of noir or pulp era equivalent of somebody threw a stick of dynamite into the alley or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that ends up in, involving this uh, strange sort of clockwork steampunk um, creature person uh, thing that is sort of uh, particularly more relevant early on in that early inve- part of the investigation, it feels like, and then sort of fades into the background as the, the villain steps up to take more center stage. So anyway, I'm really excited by the idea of the villains. Um you know the seasons. I could I could probably uh, you know take them or leave them. Um, each one they you know they talk about you know in this season then have these little mechanical tweaks and this season have these little mechanical tweaks in order to make it feel like you know you're in winter or you're in summer or whatever. Uh, and I think that's all fine. I think uh, a lot of those little mechanical tweaks tweaks would become tiresome to me eventually, and I would just end up hand waving it and ignoring it and just you know describing the crunch of the snow under your feet instead of instead of worrying about um the cold and all that well and i think that's that's kind of the beauty of it like that you can play it that way but it gives you the sense if you if you were to play all four different villains um it would be a, a kind of cool to get a different sense of like water deep and in, mm-hmm. in, in the different seasons but uh yeah i'm sure they put those mechanics in there just for the people who want them, but it might not be a one size fits all. And then the, the whole thing sort of like we talked, I talked about how this is sort of four different rails and it kind of, the rails all kind of come together at the end, but only kind of like they all end at the same area place, right? You eventually find the vault. It has the, the coins in it. It's being guarded by a dragon. Uh, but how that plays out, um, is different depending on who the villain is, right? Um, largely, it looks like the the. It, I mean, it largely seems to play out as, hey, there's a dragon here. We're probably fifth level, and there's no way we can fight this dragon. So you talk it through, you make a deal, um, and then you walk out. And then as you walk out, there's some sort of confrontation with the other villain who's who's hunting it down and what have you. Um, now. The ending of the story is the one part where I really hesitate, and I'm curious what other people think about the the, the different endings and whether or not they're satis- that satisfying. Um, so, so what do you guys think about the end, the way it, it sort of wraps up? Mm, no thoughts on the what, ending. Well, so so <laughs> what do you what do you mean? So here, here's my hesitation. Um, the entire adventure, like from the tagline at the beginning, like the, the, the pitch to the whole thing has been, oh my gosh, it's a big heist for half a million gold pieces. 
and there's like a 0% chance at the end that you walk away with half a million gold pieces. At best, you walk away with like 50,000, which is a lot of gold pieces for a, a fifth level party, right? But like it was supposed to be this huge heist and you, then at the end, you totally get robbed of it no matter what you do. Like there's no way you're walking out with all that money. Well, so I play a lot of Adventurers League. Uh-huh. So for me, and I, I hope for most Adventurers League players, they're going into this with an understanding of how incredibly disruptive it would be for the whole campaign for somebody to have half a million dragons, mm-hmm. um, half a million gold pieces. So I'm, I'm certainly of the opinion that in an organized play environment... It is absolutely necessary not for people to have that much gold because chaos. Sure. Chaos. No, and, and, and I think and I think that's fair for a non-organized play uh, setting as well. That it would completely uh, derail somebody's campaign if they got that kind of money. But you've um, also been, been not necessarily. Like not... I think, like in a home game, it's like all right, you have half a million gold pieces. And now you're the most hunted people sure. in all the <laughs> like, Forgotten Realms. Sure, you could do it. Um, and I think that's a fun storyline. Um, but, so, but my issue, uh, my bigger issue, is like you've pumped it up as you're you're doing this big thing for half a million gold, and but you're but you you're not delivering on that, right? Um, so I, I'm. It feels like it could be a little deflating. I I see that. I see yeah. that. I could also see this if if new people are going to come in and play this module, it's best not to give like a first time DM like, hey, here's an adventure. And by the way, at the end, your players get a whole ton of money. Um, mm-hmm. Most new DMs won't know how to handle that. It, it's like a, a oh, sure. deck of many things junior. But I if they had I don't know if this is anywhere in the text, but if they had included a sidebar somewhere to say, hey, you could give your players 500,000 gold here are some of the consequences or here are some of the ways that that could be handled um that might be a good way and that's not to say that someone couldn't just do that like if i was going to run it i might even give my players uh maybe a hundred thousand of it or something and just see where they go with it because it could be pretty fun just to see what trouble they get themselves in and it may be doing like a possible solution is that you don't like depending on on the factions that people are connected to if you're connected to the um to the government of Waterdeep at all, it could suddenly become a mission to recover the city's gold with a hefty reward. And then you're getting exactly what you expected. Right. And so it doesn't have that sort of, Hey, I expected this. And then I didn't, you know, then I got a tiny fraction of it. Um, And I also like at the, at the very end, there's that, there's that bit about how, Hey, and if they do walk away with a bunch of gold, uh, here's all the people that come, come along begging them for money. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I thought that was fun. (laughs) Yeah. And it, and it, I don't recall how much is stated explicitly in the adventure, but uh, just, just for our listeners. So, you know, this isn't like free gold. This is gold that was outright stolen from the mm-hmm. city of Waterdeep about 10 or 15 years before the, oh, like five or 10 years before the action starts. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not money that player char- lawful good player characters or even maybe neutral good player characters would want to keep. Right. 
Uh, at least they at least they shouldn't. So, uh, and 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 this story definitely plays up the idea of sort of law and order. The the guard is around a lot of the time. There's, uh, you know, they're handing out, you know, and there's potential player handouts with like the the code legal to tell people this is what's legal and what you can and can't get away with and what the punishments are uh, in the city and all that. Uh, certainly, I feel like you know having run plenty of middle school groups, I could definitely see. Um, it going down where the where certain players would chafe uh, against these kinds of restrictions. Uh, I could also see like there's a part of me that really likes it because it encourages like limitations encourage creativity, right? Uh-huh. And I think there's opportunities there, uh, but I also think like it's important to go into this campaign or at least this adventure with that upfront as look, this is not a you know you're not outlaws on the frontier doing whatever you want. You know this isn't the wild west. You're in the middle of a major metropolitan city. There is an expectation that we're going to start sort of try to f- stay within the law or at least hide the way that we're breaking the law. And, you know not be overt about it and just running through the streets of Waterdeep killing everybody. Um, and I think it probably helps that they only get up to fifth level. So worst case scenario, the black staff shows up and smacks them down, right? But yes, and she is more than capable. Yes, but but uh, I guess my point is like that's not necessarily super fun for anybody. Um, so I think if people know what kind of story they're getting into and they're on board for that, then I think it would work a lot better than just be like, hey, make characters. We're going to run a thing and not really. Uh, prep them for the style of game just in case that's not what they were expecting well and the authors are pretty subtle and wise about (laughs) pointing that out because you know the first real encounter is a big bar fight and it's a bar fight among humanoid citizens that have a difference of opinion and uh, if you draw steel in said bar fight you are now committing assault and perhaps murder. Mm. And so it's a, it's a good way to kind of have people say, huh, I probably should do this with my bare hands, which is hilarious because right. I'm not really proficient. Right. Um, it, it establishes some limitations early on, and then you come to expect this. Yeah. Right on. Well, and the idea that it's a heist, too. Like, uh, if, uh, if a heist was just going into a cave and beating up a monster and taking its treasure, it wouldn't be a heist. It wouldn't be very much fun. Sure. Uh, I think most people understand that it's couched in the terms of we have a lot of obstacles to overcome. And if we're clever, we can do it in a way that's really fun. Um, so just just the fact that it's called a dragon heist, I think, lets people know kind of what the expectations are mm. instead of like, you know, dragon, steal the gold from the dragon and beat it upside the head. Mm-hmm. So any other thoughts about uh, the way it wraps up, the way it ends, the, the all these things that we've been talking about before we talk about the the, th- the primer at the end? Okay, then. Let's talk about that primer. We kind of mentioned it before, the, the Incheridion, or however you want to pronounce that, uh, which is basically just a Volo's guide to Waterdeep, right? Volo... Um, used to they're used to they i mean second edition days they actually publish whole books of volo's guide to whatever right um 
and and it was basically his travelogue. Volo's this guy who travels all over the Forgotten Realms and writes about his experiences and whatever. And so this is sort of a, a pamphlet version of that for the city of Waterdeep that's stuck at the end of the book. Uh, it it reads as if it is intended to be player facing. Like it's it's a pamphlet that the players could walk down the street of Waterdeep and purchase uh, one. So you could, it's something you could just hand to your players. Say here, you want to know about Waterdeep? Here's some stuff that people know about Waterdeep, and it uh, and it's you know it's it's Volo, so it's an unreliable narrator. Uh, so as a DM, you could absolutely like play with that and change whatever you what you wanted or, or what have you. Um, I thought it was an interesting little little thing to throw at the end. It was nice to see sort of that Volo. Um, voice coming back into into the game um but i was curious what other people thought um i think that it's a it's a fantastic uh primer and and kind of like a nice little uh travelogue travel guide um it makes me a little bit yearn for the ironically uh in-depth books that we saw from fourth edition like uh the (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> the Neverwinter book and the the uh, Men's of Bronson Men's of book Bronson, yeah. where they ended up being very little on the crunch side and more on like this is what the setting is and and here we're going to just give you all this information we're going to really flesh out the city well um, there and, there were alternative motives for that I don't know if you remember but that was that no, was I absolutely do yeah that was towards the end of fourth edition and they didn't they wanted to be a little more system neutral so it would still have legs later on correct no I, I absolutely get that but um, I'm greedy, and so I want I want what I want. And, <laughs> right, uh, absolutely. <laughs> if I could have if I could have like a 200 page uh, Incaridian of Waterdeep, I, I, I would uh, pay money for that any day of the week. But I know that's not happening anytime soon. And like I mentioned, I, I, I imagine there's something out there that would like in a previous edition that would probably satisfy that need. Yeah, and I don't know that I want that at this time for for that purpose, right? Um, you know, I mean, yes, I also want what I want, and I want a full uh, Forgotten Realms campaign guide uh, like we've had in the last several editions uh, to give me all kinds of details. Uh, but for what this is, like this in some ways reminds me a little bit of the the Wayfarer's Guide to Eberron without the crunch, right? It's just enough that as a DM, yeah. I can grab onto it and play with it. And I can hand over to my players and say, here's here's some information to, to sort of spur your creativity, but it doesn't need to be the depth, right? It's just the inspiration. Yeah, and I, so like I'm a conservative in the sense that I want there to be a very slow crunch publication schedule for fifth edition um like there's there's uh always a diversity of opinion on this point but for this one person i prefer a slow release schedule so that the edition lasts longer Mm -hmm. and so regardless uh for the edition to last at all wizards of the coast has to sell books so i think the adventure plus background or fluff or inquiry on Adventure plus setting works really well mm-hmm. because crunch plus setting, hello, Sword Coast Adventures Guide, makes me a little frightened. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have a problem with like a book like the Sword Coast Adventures Guide, um, but you're, I don't disagree with you. I think the, the pace that we're currently getting products, which is like what, three or four books a year, is just about perfect. Plus, I think back to when I first started this podcast in the middle of third edition and how I was trying to get, you know, get two reviews in of major books a month 
because that's how many books they were publishing every month. Plus, I was reviewing the magazines back then at the same time, too. Like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) It was insane. (laughs) But now, now, like, we can do, uh, you know... Four four official Watsi reviews a year. Plus, then we can throw in some third party stuff and do some other interesting things. Look back at some PDFs. Like, uh, I feel like we're doing uh, more interesting things now, and I think we're able to explore D and D in more interesting ways, not just on the show, but generally. Um, and and the edition will last longer because of it, because we won't have the the massive bloat that oftentimes come. And even when they do publish these books, they tend to be fairly crunch light, with a few exceptions, right? Um, they tend to be very lore heavy and, and what have you, um, that I feel like the mechanics aren't as likely to become problematic as quickly as they have in previous editions. I hope cross my fingers like you page. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I got, I got a little concerned when green flame blade came out in sword coast adventures guide <laughs> and it just became the go-to spell mm. for so many classes as it still is and should be. It's just that good. Uh, so and, and God knows we've all heard people jokingly refer to it as Xanathar's Guide to Power Creep. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I right. I just enjoy the slow pace of, of release. That's just fine. The other thing, um, going back to the actual section, is that yes. it's important to remember that not everyone has read novels and not everyone has played previous editions. Right. So if you wanted to try to bring them into something like this where with the choice of um, competitors or villains, if if you will, uh, mm-hmm. it is deeply entrenched in that mythos of or and lore of the Forgotten Realms, and particularly Waterdeep. That it might be a little difficult for s- some folks to get into it without some sort of hey, this is what the town, what the city's kind of like, and mm-hmm. some of the differences within it. Yeah, uh, which is a oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. I was, I was just saying, absolutely. I think it's a great little primer. Um, to get people in now, I don't have, I can't read it from the experience of. I wonder what this if this is useful for new people because uh, that ship sailed for me in the Forgotten Realms a long time ago, right? But uh, it feels like it should work for that. <laughs> so, and you can get it on DMs Guild and just get that part, right? Just get that primer, so then you can print it off or send that PDF off to your players, and they can peruse it as they at their leisure as they feel. Uh, like they want to dig more into the setting of the adventure that you're playing too. So I think that's got a lot of value. And, and, and do, that, Oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say real quick. I love the carnival art. Oh, <laughs> the art in general in the book is so good. Mm-hmm. I love the old school map. Oh yeah. The map. I can't believe anybody ever complained about those. Um, I love the way that they look. And now, are you? Nice now, I, th- I think I think you guys are talking about different maps. So, so Paige, you're talking about the the fold up map that's in the back. I mean, that is a beautiful map too. But oh, no, okay. I'm talking about the the individual maps. Dyson okay, you're talking maps. about Dyson logos, Gorgeous. black and white maps on the inside. Okay, so you are yeah, talking about the like, same thing, and I'm the one that's off. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I mean, I like I said, I'm old. I'm 47. I started playing in '81, and like I see those maps and the little, you know, withered, charcoal-filled, salt-packed thing mm. in my chest that I call a heart remembers <laughs> uh, heap on the borderlands and just kind mm. of like like warms up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, Ishmael, what were you saying? You were talking about the maps too. Yeah, I was just saying there there was a little bit of kind of a blowback on social media 
in regards to the maps and how they looked too simple and how they looked uh they weren't fully colored and they did they kind of stood out against the rest of the book which is beautifully illustrated uh obviously uh, but I had no uh, issue, and I don't think anyone here had any issue with the way that the maps were. I loved the way that they looked. They were clear. There was no confusion. I know I've used official D&D maps from previous um, adventures in 5th edition where it's like, well, what's this? And where is mm-hmm. this going? These maps look amazing. The, I like the fact that they stand out that the, the way that they do, and there's no confusing what is what, and they do kind of have that functionality. It's something that I could print out. I won't. I won't uh, run out of toner doing it mm. and uh, it will look great on a, on a game table if I need to do that. Yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm one of the people who looked at it and I wasn't railing against these maps, but I was certainly like, Oh, this is different than what I'm used to. Right. Because Dyson logos uh, did the maps and, and I, I love the maps that he does. Right. They're fantastic. Uh, but it is very different than what I'm used to seeing, right? I'm used to seeing at least the background on the map sort of matching the rest of the page. But this is uh, whenever there's a map, they they switch it to white and then he's got the, the black um, lines on top of it for the map. Uh, and they look fantastic, but it is different than what we're used to. And that's worth pointing out to people to, to you know, I, I don't dislike it. But it certainly uh, caught my eye the first time I saw it and I wasn't quite sure... Um, what to think of it yet. And I think I will have to really, really like spend months, you know, running this adventure and being, being in this book and in these pages for a while to really figure out if this is something that's better or if it's something that is just different. Um, Cause that's sort of where I'm at. It's either going to be just a different choice or uh, of way of ways to do this, uh, or it's going to be something that's probably better than what's been done before. And I haven't sort of made up my mind yet where I'm at. Well, I really like Dyson Logos maps, and I, I like them in the book. But what I did want to say real quick is if folks like these maps and, and don't know about Dyson, they should definitely uh, look up his website. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has a ton of maps that he has made available, uh, some for non-commercial and some even for commercial use mm-hmm. uh, on his site. So yep, if there's something charge. you like, go. <laughs> yep. He also has a really good collection of D and D books with uh, googly eyes on them. Yeah, yes. he's hilarious. He's the guy who started that, and then Watsy started copying him. So, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And these are oh, one sorry. legitimate criticism of them that I that I truly re- recognize is that someone has said that they're hard on rule twenty because mm-hmm. it's black and white. And while that looks amazing at the game table, or particularly like printing it out on like parchment paper, looks amazing at the game table, I could see where that might not work very well for Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds or whatever. And yeah. plenty of people have redone the maps for that. Yeah, that's legit. Huh. So I think we've done a pretty thorough job of, of digging through this book. I'm, I want to hear any last thoughts that people have. I know I have one or two that I think are worth mentioning, but I, I'll, I'll give you guys an opportunity to share last thoughts first. So, um, no, you first. Okay. Uh, I know it already got brought up before, but the artwork throughout the book, I mm-hmm. think, does a really good job in bringing out the that Waterdeep is uh, an interesting and diverse city. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
so because they do lots of different things it is one of the nice things about doing the different seasons uh because you see the same and sometimes and some of them you see like the same scene i think it's all of them uh through the different seasons so you can see it so there's diversity obviously in the weather but also in like the people and like carnival and stuff like that that's going on so and i thought that was really nice and there's also those three kids there's a series of those three kids showing up in all of the different pieces of art um, and those three kids even represent some, some interesting diversity as well. So other last thoughts. So my initial, um, takeaway from this book is uh, thank God it's not a world ending event. Thank God that this isn't <laughs> like, Oh, if we don't stop the Xanathar, he's going to blow up right. the sword coast. Who, who's or, the, who's know, the cult and... threatening everybody this week, right? Exactly. And you know, it, I, I don't necessarily fault uh, Wizards of the Coast for having their adventures previously where it's like, okay, if we don't stop this, extremely bad things are going to happen and it's going to affect the entire, you know, the entire continent in some way. Um, the other thing that uh, even just in the co course of this conversation that I thought of is uh, this makes the mega dungeon of um, Dungeon of the Mad Mage more important because as opposed to being some huge dungeon in the middle of nowhere that you could maybe not care about. And it just seems like this remote thing. It's in the city. You've built your stakes. You have your tavern. Right. Um, it's under it your house you, now. Yeah, exactly. It makes you care about um, going in and doing uh, hopefully what's right or even what's lucrative, but you're not just, you're not just being murder hobos uh, plumbing a tomb that probably um, should never have been plumbed in the first place. You're, you're going down and you're taking care of stuff that if, even if, if for self-serving reasons is, is probably for the best. Right on. Uh, Paige, we haven't heard any last thoughts from you. Do you have anything else you want to t discuss with the book? Uh, so I, I have really studied the published adventures I think this might be my favorite one mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons, but I think it's got good role playing. I think it's good for new players. I think it's good for new DMs and it's got uh, a bunch of cool areas that the authors are like, Hey, here's this cool idea and we're going to reference it, but we do not have the page count to, uh, mm -hmm. to really expand on what's going on here. So DMs go nuts. Yeah, have fun. I feel like there's a lot of gifts in there to the, to the DMs. Uh, for instance, for instance, this is the one that really turns me on. I've, I'm writing some other stuff about this, but at one point in time, you meet a nimble right, which is a type of const uh, construct, mm -hmm. and the nimble right is lonely and is getting in trouble for making more nimble rights so that it won't be lonely. <laughs> and and then it's, I mean, then 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 it's the next paragraph, and you're on to other stuff. Well. I mean, there's a whole like Terminator uprising of <laughs> constructs plotline to put in Waterdeep right there. So there's a lot of gifts in there to new DMs, and I, I strongly recommend it. There is, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I had two last thoughts. I, I thought uh, when we were talking about the the visual diversity that, that is later on in the book, it might come up at that point. But there's uh, explicit effort made to also discuss uh, uh, a non-binary concept of, of gender. Um, within the, the confines of, of all the diversity of this big metropolitan city um, that I thought was uh, nice to see, uh, to, to yeah. see represented in, in the realms officially. Uh, and then also, um, there is 
we talked about how there are, you know, city guard running around and, and what have you. And a few of them are named characters who are sort of the people in that are running this investigation parallel to what the, the players are investigating. Uh, and I think very firmly that uh, Sergeant Crowley, if you look at the art for Sergeant Crowley, uh, he looks an awful lot like the former host of the round table who also helped write this book, James Intercasso, <laughs> uh, your friend and mine. Right. Uh, but I, I, I firmly believe, I don't know which artist uh, did the Sergeant Crowley art, but I, I think they had to have used James Intercasso as a, as a model for that because uh, it's a pretty good likeness to me. So there we go. Yeah, I, I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> There's my last thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we're going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. We'd like to say thank you to our listeners who support the show using our affiliate links with Amazon and DMs Guild, as well as those who support us directly at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. We also want to thank our guest, Ishmael. Ishmael, where can people find you? Primarily on Twitter uh, as either um, Elven Wizard King or King Lorathorn. Elven Wizard King is probably easier to spell. Um, and just on uh, drive through our RPG or RPG Now uh, under Ishmael Alvarez. Awesome. And Paige? Uh, you can find me most easily actually on Facebook in the 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons Facebook group. And I say the because it's the big one. Uh, additionally, you can look me up on Twitter. That's at Paige Lightman. And uh, as always, shout shout at me if you got something you want to talk about D&D related. I'm always happy to chat. And you can hear uh, Paige regularly on the roundtable here at the Tome Show. Absolutely. So Very good. If you want to get a hold of us, uh, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can tweet me. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. You can tweet Tracy. She is at Sarah Darkmagic. Uh, and you can tweet the show at the Tome Show. And that's episode 311, where we gave up this adventuring life and spent the rest of our days running out a haunted tavern in this episode of... The Tome, 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 like me, you don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and You don't dress up to play D and unless you want to. Like me, you don't think we fancy? Let me teach you about class. Priest, fighter, rogue, cast a kick your ass. You don't think we street? Look at this table full of ice. You don't think we hard? Just touch my dice. You don't think we can get it at the birds and the bees? I'm a pallet in the suits, but a thief in the shoes. My character shoots because they full of the brim with maxed out stats. He think he in charge, we don't worry about him Simple when he out to get us, be like Jack the Swim Master player, traitor, master creator Look at me, master NPC generator Just cause she a master doesn't mean you have to hate her Got a boy, I don't need to be no master later I don't care if over there your character is dying Cause it's just like baseball, there's no crying You wanna join in, now you start realizing We're the cool, cool nerds, call me Neil deGrasse Tyson D to the R to the A and S D and D the dungeon master sets up a scenario, then he or she asks, where would you like to go? We talk as a group, then decide together, there's no winning, yo, we could play forever. Stay right there, let me answer your questions, I'll clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there, let me answer your questions, I'll clear up.
dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, you don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D. You don't dress up to play D and D unless you want to. Like me, I'm on the wall.